Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create and grow income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Are you tired of trading your time for money? Do you desire freedom today instead of retirement in 10, 20, or 30 years? I'm MC Lobsher, and this is the Cashflow Ninja. Hello, Cashflow Ninjas. MC Lobsher, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. In today's episode, we're going to look at the passive investor uh, checklist and due diligence checklist. I'm joined by Kavita Barake, um, and Kavita is a commercial real estate syndicator and educator. Kavita, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, MC, for having me on. So for my listeners um, that's not familiar with you and what you do, can you please share a little bit about your background and journey? Sure. So I started uh, as a technology professional. So I've been in IT. I had been in IT for almost 20 years uh, before I actually switched to real estate full-time, which was just last year. Uh, I started investing in stocks and options for a while and then discovered that that's not something that I could really potentially do for a very long time without getting burnt out. And uh, then found real estate in 2009 when the market was down, I saw an opportunity there and decided I'll get a home and see how it goes. Like everyone else, I started with single family homes. So put in my first, uh, bought my first home in Austin, Texas, where I live right now, and uh, tried to play the landlord and see how it was. And slowly I scaled that up. I started buying more homes. And my vision initially was interestingly to just buy homes and retire. And uh, a few years later, I realized that's probably not going to happen because the property taxes in Texas went up a lot. Um, the cash flow were reduced. I started also refinancing some of the homes and trying to buy newer properties. So it was a great way to start. But looking back, I probably would have started more with multifamily being able to scale up much faster. But anyway, I was always looking to do uh, my own deal, like go buy an apartment complex, maybe a small one. And that's sort of what propelled me into this whole commercial real estate journey and um, ended up not ever doing that small apartment. But thank God for that, because I probably would have been sucked into it and done nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so that was good. I ended up partnering with a bunch of people. Initially, I started as a passive investor in multifamily. And I was just intending, I had a full-time job in technology paying me well. I didn't really need to do anything else, but it was always my intention to step away from technology and actually do some business of my own. And um, I knew real estate was a thing and I was managing rental homes, but I never looked at it as a business because I didn't rely on it for money or, you know, it was just a little more a long-term play of buying rental homes and hopefully creating some equity, especially in a city like Austin which was growing at that time. So after I got to the target goal I set for the number of homes I thought I needed to retire, I realized I'm not going to retire on them. So I needed to look at another strategy. Um, that's how multifamily happened. You know, sort of one thing led to another, got introduced to the right people, and then ended up joining a group out of Dallas to learn more about apartment investing. And since I was going to be a passive investor, so one of the things I did, which I would rec would not recommend investors do, is to invest into my first passive deal with no idea of what I was doing. <laughs> I actually went in cold and I was like, oh, these people seem to be good. Everybody trusts them. So I'm going to invest with them. In hindsight, they were great people. They are great people. So it, it worked out fine for me, but I wouldn't do that in hindsight. And that's kind of why when I got to the point of being on the other side of uh, the, the equation where I started doing sponsorships or a, what we call a general partner in uh, uh, deals and putting deals together, I decided that I'm going to look from a passive investor perspective because that's where I started. And I felt like to become a passive, it took me almost even to just go in and become a passive. I just put in my money, but I didn't do enough due diligence. So that's, that's something I wanted to kind of help other people do better. And so when I went on the sponsorship side, I started focusing on education and ways to 
convey what I had learned over the last three years to my investors because I felt like I had gone through the hoops, traveled to Dallas every weekend from Austin or every other weekend a lot of times just to learn these things, which I didn't feel was necessary as a passive necessarily because um, as a passive, what you need to do is understand the deal, understand who you're dealing with, understand the location. There's a couple of things to be in mind, but do you have to go for a two-year education to be a passive investor? I think not, but I ended up doing it. And of course, it was great for me because I was headed towards being active. And at that time, I didn't even know what I was heading towards. But in retrospect, it was probably a good thing for me. But I'm also focused on figuring out how I can help my passive investors faster, get there faster without jumping through the same hoops I did. The 1% grow their business and investments every year, regardless of the economy and marketplace and pay very little or no taxes legally. Besides having the right mindset, elite strategies and tactics, and the council of elite wealth advisors, coaches and mentors, they have access to opportunities that the rest of the population do not. If you're an accredited investor, we have a network that provides Cashflow Ninja listeners access to exclusive business and investment opportunities. To join our investors network, please apply at CashflowNinjaInvestorsNetwork.com. That's CashflowNinjaInvestorsNetwork.com. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a lot to unpack in today's episode, which I think is going to be very valuable for all of our listeners, because uh, as you mentioned, folks, there there's a lot of busy professionals or business owners that listen to the show that are looking for ways or maybe trying to figure out, well, how do I vet uh, deals as a passive investor? How do I vet operators as a passive uh, passive investor? And then there's also folks that are m- a little bit more active. I think you're going to find this valuable too. Number one, to see what other people could potentially be looking for. And if you're looking for partners, other active partners, you'll be able to vet that as well. So, um, You've put together some great content on a due diligence checklist for a passive investor. We've had folks talk about a due diligence checklist for a specific property or a deal, but this is truly just as a passive investor. So let's take a look at at it. Uh, One of obviously the big things, the first thing to look at and that you mentioned is the sponsor the person that's actually doing that. Maybe for our newer uh, listeners, if you can start off by just sharing what a sponsor is, what their role is, what they do, and then what are some of the things to look at when it comes to a sponsor? Sure. So before I get to what a sponsor is, let's talk about what a syndication is, which is why where I start with all my investors. I basically okay. tell them a syndication helps us buy a larger property than we could on our own. So I'm not going to go out there and buy a $10 million apartment complex, but I can get a pool of investors together to go do that. So I look at a a sponsor as someone who puts a syndication together where they find the deal, they find the apartment, they find the people, they put the two together and they make that deal happen to go and purchase the deal and then make sure that the cash flow and the equity returns from the deal are coming back to the investors. So that's who a sponsor is. A sponsor is someone who puts a deal together for a passive investor. And then what are some of the things to look at when you're vetting a a sponsor? So I'd say the first thing to first place to start if you're if you're working with a sponsor you already know um, maybe they're they know a friend they are a friend of a friend or you know them through your work or however it might be then it's a little bit easier to establish that a certain level of trust with the sponsor which I think we all need to have before we invest with someone because you're giving a substantial amount of money away to someone and you want to make sure that the person has the basic stuff in place, right? Like the integrity and they are going to handle your money well. They're going to be uh, communicative with you and all of that stuff. But if you're starting somewhere, which might well very well happen where you can't really uh, you don't really know much about the sponsor. You met them through social media or you met them through a friend of a friend of a friend. Uh, what I would say is do your background research on the sponsor 
ask them, ask the sponsor for, hey, what have you done in terms of deals? What's your track record? Do you have referrals? Do you have people who have worked with you, passive investors or otherwise? And I would say the track record and people that have worked with them will be a pretty good indication of what the sponsor has been able to do so far. And you definitely, I mean, not to say that you can't work with a new sponsor, but at least look at the entire sponsorship team to see what they bring to the table and what their experience have been. Because people have to start somewhere, so I don't want to ding all the new sponsors. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, what does that team look like? That's more important at that point. Even if the sponsors knew, do they have a backing of a team that has experience? So definitely look at the team composition. Ask for plenty of references for the sponsor, and they should be able to provide it to you. And look at the track record. Um, and also look at what the sponsor is bringing to the table in terms of skin in the game. And I think that's very important to me that in all my deals, I put skin in the game. I have everybody on the sponsorship put skin in the game because now they have like a vested interest in making the deal successful. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, a lot of great stuff that you just shared here. Um, I mean, one of the things that, that comes to mind too is um, if you're doing some research on something is, well, first, there's a browser sh- a search. <laughs> you could go to your favorite browser. You know, if there's a sponsor or someone presenting you with a deal, you can throw their name in Google basically and see yeah. and, and find some stuff that comes up. The second part of that too is doing some social media, um, surfing around on social media, seeing what you see on there. Um, there's other, you know, you could go across a whole bunch of channels to see what is, is posted on there. Um, and then some of the other comments that I would have to, if you really want to get, um, you know, uh, how can I say, if you, if you want to get very, very serious, you can do background checks too. Yep. There's background checks that you can, that, that you can pull references is good. We talked a little bit, you talked about a little bit about the trust. Do you know this person who introduced this person to you? Um, references and the track record. I, I, I appreciate what you, what you just said, because everyone has to start somewhere. So what I've seen folks done, and this is maybe for people that are just getting started on their journey, maybe as even as a sponsor is when they have great mentors and coaches that's Absolutely. on their team, that um, brings a certain level of comfort to a lot of investors, right? So for example, if you're brand new and doing this, but you're, you have a mentor or a coach that's doing this with you and guiding you through it that's done over you know a thousand units or two thousand or whatever the number is and how many deals they've done and they've got a great track record that provides a lot of credibility to it um and then of course i you know skin in the game that's that's the other thing does this person uh that's providing or doing this deal are they actually investing in this themselves i mean that would be just you know that would be the one of the first things that yeah. I would ask is how much are you actually investing in this or are you investing or do you eat your own cooking without throwing up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, a lot of great stuff here. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of different things folks can add to this, this list that we just shared. But I mean, do your due diligence. It's not that hard these days with the tools that are available um, right. Like I said, there's even, you know, outside third parties that will do this for you if you are interested in something like that. So uh, the second step that, uh, that you wanted to talk about a little bit is the property. Now, everybody just will have a different, um, I would say, checklist of exactly what they're looking for. But maybe you can talk a little bit about around the, the property and some of the things that you would add to uh, anyone's due diligence checklist. Yeah, I'd say, you know, I have some investors who want to invest only in like class three properties. And I've had those people say, hey, this is a B. I don't necessarily want to invest in that because a lot of times new investors will get hung up on a price per door or what the property is selling for. And I always try to focus them on that isn't as important as what the property is making and where the property is located especially as we get into a downturn, I think those are very key factors about the kind of tenant base you have and the location of the property because that can make or break a property. So I always try to steer people away from, yes, the price per door might be high on this one, but it 
deserves to be high because the property is making that much more money. The the median, um, the uh, average uh, rent there is much higher than this average rent here. So no, properties are not alike just because even if they're in a certain class, the location obviously can change everything in real estate. So I think my goal in this whole property checklist is to look at, objectively look at what is the property price at is the price right for the location? Not like, not just like a, a dollar amount. Like it could be one forty a door in one in Austin Market. It could be, you know, eighty a door in da- San Antonio. But they're not alike, right? The market's completely different. The profile of tenants are different. So you have to look at all of that. Um, th- that's where I get to the location class and also looking at the current occupancy because there are some. What I've seen doing underwriting across different cities is that the occupancy in San Antonio is not the same as occupancy in Austin market. It's not the same as occupancy in Dallas market. There are some hot markets where it's very normal to have 98% occupancy. But if you have 92% occupancy in San Antonio, it's not necessarily a bad thing because that's just what the market is there. So look at the property and say, okay, for the, I mean, it's hard. I get it as a passive, but that's something your sponsor, the questions you could ask your sponsor is that what is the average occupancy for properties in that particular location or that particular market? You know, is this average like what you're seeing or are we going in at a low occupancy and is the objective to increase occupancy? Because sometimes I've seen simple things like sponsor will say, oh, yeah, it's 98 percent occupancy. We're going to make it 98 percent occupancy. It's sitting at 85 right now. I'm like, is that realistic given that market? What is the average occupancy in that particular sub market? So those are all things that I would ask investors to ask questions to their sponsors about. And the, the sponsor should be able to give you the data to support it. Right, right. Let's um, look at other comments on markets and sub-markets. What are some of the things that you would add to a due diligence uh, list for a passive investor? So um, I, I love this, um, this sponsor. Um, and I, honestly, a lot of this is, from, is uh, inspired by him. His name is Neil Bava. And yep. he's done this amazing like real focus analysis where he talks about the market and sub-market and you know, folks should Google that and look that up as well. But the short of it is you want to be in a market that is going through some kind of population growth, job growth, especially if you want to see, there are two, two schools of thought here for me. If I want to see just high cash on cash returns, and I don't really care about the equity returns, then I could be in a tertiary market, which is not experiencing a whole lot of growth and where we can buy at a much higher cap rate. But if you are in a primary market or even a secondary market, then you might not really get a great deal in terms of cap rate and have a lot of cash flow, but the upside in terms of equity could be really much higher. Because the market is experiencing so much growth in terms of jobs and population and hence rents. So that would push up your equity quite a bit in the property. So there's both sides, right? Like I have balanced my portfolio to say, okay, I want more cash flow. um, So I'm going to focus maybe on these markets when I invest passively. If I want more equity returns, I'm going to invest in these markets. So it's good as a passive to look at what's your objective. If you're you're in a full-time job and you don't really care about the equity growth, you're getting enough income right now, you're uh, rather you don't care about the cash flow, you're getting enough income right now, but you're looking for long-term equity growth in the property, then look, maybe look at markets which are experiencing more job growth and more population growth, because that's going to give you the most bang for your buck in terms of uh, the growth for your dollars invested. My friend Brian Page has created a cash flow machine generating over $100,000 in six months without owning any real estate. His system consists out of renting properties from property owners and renting them out on Airbnb. His system is so simplistic, it can be managed by virtual assistants and yet so effective and powerful that it predictably generates cash flow every month. Brian and I are hosting a webinar where he shares his system and how it generated over $100,000 in six months for him personally. You can access this life-changing webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash 
BNB. This is one of the greatest cash flow opportunities I've seen since I've started my podcast. Again, the URL is cashflowninja.com forward slash BNB. Yeah, Neil Scott put some, put put out some great stuff. He's a right. he's been a guest on the show, so I would re- highly recommend listeners check it out and also check out the previous episode done with them. Let's talk a little bit about returns. Uh, any anything that you wanted to comment on on returns? Um, I actually would like to go back to the market and submarket a little bit because I want to do, do I want to talk about the median home value as well as the crime rate. And a couple of other factors, the household income. I think those are really important factors to look at. Like those three I pick out besides the job growth and the income growth. I want to pick out those three a little bit more because the household income is really important when you look at a particular property and where it's located. And I would even look at like a five mile or a one mile radius income because in some markets, things change from street to street, right? Like San Antonio is a very prime example. I could take a zip code and the zip code household income would mean nothing because within that zip code, there's a $7 million house and a $70,000 house. That's just some markets like that. So you want to make sure that you unpack and figure out where exactly the property is located. Maybe go to a Google map and actually look at what's around that property. For example, if you look at a dollar store next to the property or around the property, that should give you a pretty good indicator that that's a class C location. But if you see something like a Starbucks somewhere close to the property, that's a pretty good indication that it's probably a class B location or better because Starbucks wouldn't put a store there if it wasn't because they know the clientele they want to attract. So that's another factor I always tell my clients, uh, my customers, is that um, hey, don't just look at the zip code uh, uh, household income, but nail down and go into Google Maps or whatever your favorite mapping tool is. Look at what's around the property because that gives you a very good indicator of where the property is located in terms of the profile of the tenants you're going to get and as well as the profile of the property itself. So my recommendation always leans towards look at a good location. It's okay. The property is not in great condition or it's got a lot of deferred maintenance because now you can go in and add a lot of value to it. So uh, that's something I wanted to point out with the household income. The other one I really like is the crime rate and Neil focuses on this as well because there are uh, new investors will always get carried away with high cap rates. They say, oh, 10 cap, that's amazing. But I'm like, no, 10 cap isn't always good. <laughs> if you can get 10 cap in Memphis, I would rather go for like a five cap in Dallas. The reason is it's 10 cap for a good reason, right? Like the crime rate's really high or, you know, there's just so many issues with going for just looking at a cap rate or the cash flow in a property. You want to look at the crime rate and, um, Look at what the city is doing about the crime rate in the property in the sense that is it increasing over a period of time? Is it decreasing? Is it constant? So um, there's, a, there's a free website called city-data.com and Neil refers to this as well that I would encourage the lis- listeners to go in and look and just punch in the zip code and it should tell you what the crime rate of the property has been over the last 10 years. Uh, sorry, not the property, but the crime rate of the market. And why that's as important is that if the city is doing something about the crime rate to reduce it, that means it's a very high likelihood that you're in a market that will grow well because obviously more employees are going to come there. The the city is going to experience more growth. So I think that's very important for me. Uh, I know a lot of people who have lost a lot of money investing in markets that have very high crime rates and people have made money as well, but look at it as in a downturn, which one's going to hold up better? Because the higher the crime, the um, the lower the tenant demographic, the more bad debt you're going to see in a downturn. And especially as we are approaching a possible downturn, who knows? I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball, but everything is pointing towards having one after the elections sometime next year. Given that, I would be very careful about the type of property that you're getting into there. Absolutely. Um, great, great information. Do you want to talk a little bit about financing before we get to the returns? Sure, sure. Um, so with financing, 
I, I, I don't know. I have, I have uh, conflicting. Earlier, I would be like, I want a 10-year financing in place, uh, 10 or 12-year long-term financing in place. Uh, obviously, most of our multifamily investments are non-recourse, which means that to a listener, non-recourse is when you have the property as a collateral where the sponsors are not actually putting their own, uh, you know, you as a limited partner, obviously not liable for that loan, nor, nor are the sponsors in a non-recourse loan. The worst case that would happen is that you could lose the property. That's a non-recourse loan. So most of the loans in multifamily are non-recourse, whereas in hotels, we do see a fair amount of recourse loans. Um, the IO term, uh, that's sort of the, the number of years that you could only pay interest only, and then you'll have the principal catch up to make after that. I like long IO terms, but I also think that it you know you, you get piled up on the principal. So you've got to have be careful about... Typically, you see about one to three years. I'm starting to see even five, six IO, IO terms uh, for five, six years. Um, but that's interesting because now, assuming it can increase your yield, obviously, because you're not paying principal for almost five or six years. But at the same time, if you hold the property beyond that, you will get hit really hard in year seven or whenever the IO term expires. So that's something to watch out for. But if you have a five-year plan to exit the property and you have IO term is six years, I think you should be fine for most part. Uh, the loan to value, high leverage is good, but high leverage is also bad. So I kind of lean towards most multifamily properties nowadays, you'll see about 70 to 75% leverage, which means the loan to value is um, 75%. Uh, the loan amount is 75% of the value of the property, the appraised value. So there I would say the the very high leverage can also mean that, yes, your returns are better, but you also have more risk because now your debt service is much higher. You're paying it more every month. So think about a downturn where your occupancy dips or you have a significant change in the property. Uh, how do you handle those debt service payments? So I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards I'm happy with 70% on most deals. I don't need to be at 85 LTV or whatever. So that's sort of my take on that. Um, as far as the type and loans, again, there's just a whole bunch of options there. We have Fannie, Freddie, we have bridge loans, we have CMBS. So the only thing to watch out with bridge loans, bridge loans are basically temporary loans that folks take out for a shorter period of time uh, that are not usually fixed for 10 years. They're usually three to five years. But the thing with bridge loans is the interest rate could jump up significantly. So I'll always look for like a cap, an interest cap on those bridge loans to make sure that you're not going to have a huge spike in the interest rate when the, the term of the loan is expired. So that's, uh, that's something to look out for. Personally, I am leaning towards properties that doesn't need extensive repositioning. What I mean by that is I think the heavy value add properties like uh, which can deliver a lot of value to an investor in terms of returns can also be riskier at this point in the cycle because this just we don't know how it, we don't know what we don't know. Let's say you go in with like a 50% occupancy property right now. You don't know how much uh, before, but let's say you spend the next 12 months fixing up the property and now you want to ramp up the tenant base and start occupying, you know, getting more occupancy into the property. You don't know what the demand's going to be, how the job situation's going to be and all that. Same thing with new construction. There's a, a bigger element of risk involved there. Not to say it won't work. In some cases, I'm starting to see new construction prices catch up and be almost as similar as older construction. And then you start to look at, okay, which one makes more sense? Although there are no returns for almost two years with new construction, maybe it does make sense because you don't have to deal with all the deferred maintenance. So the jury's out on that one. Uh, figure out your risk profile, figure out what you're willing to, you know, what, how much risk you're willing to take and decide whatever is more appropriate for you there. MC Lobshire, the creator of the Cashflow Ninja and Cashflow Coach at Producers Wealth, where we help our clients integrate infinite banking with their business and investments. To learn how you can create your own banking system to turbocharge your investments and business in 30 days or less, go to yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. 
can you speak a little bit to deal assumptions? Because that's another thing, um, you know, that obviously ties into the business plan. But what are, should some folks look at when it comes to deal assumptions? Yeah, I think this one's really important in the sense that um, assumptions are such a big part of everything the sponsor gives you. And when they promise you 85%, 100% returns and 20%, whatever, 10% cash flow, all these are assumptions, right? (laughs) Nothing is guaranteed there. So it's really good to dissect and see what the basis of those assumptions are. So if I had to put like behind the sponsor, I think this is probably very important for you to understand as a passive investor. What are the assumptions that the sponsor is making? in providing these returns because I could change one number in one of those in that list and the numbers could change completely, right? For example, if I take exit cap rate. So exit cap rate is the cap rate I'm assuming I'll sell the property for. So the lower that cap rate, the more money I can make on the back end in terms of um, the purchase, uh, the sale price. So I always like to assume that the market's not going to be where we are right now, we are at the high of the market, and then make a reasonable assumption for exit cap rate, which for me is like 1% higher than my entry cap rate typically in most of my deals. I've seen sponsors go as low as 25 basis points, which is 0.25%. I've seen sponsors go at the same cap rate, which they bought the property for. For me, that's a risky assumption because you're assuming that the market's going to be what it is today. So I would say that's probably one of the big ones to watch out for because the difference between assuming today's cap rate and let's say a cap rate, which is a percent higher, can mean the difference between 50% returns and 85% or 100% returns. Even maybe even bit bit more depending on what the cash flow is because if the, there are two components to returns there's a cash flow and there's an equity the lower the amount of cash flow the lo- the more you're assuming that the equity returns will be higher right so yeah. the more uh, that exit cap rate is uh, different from the entry cap rate the the higher the exit cap rate you're assuming the the higher the returns no the lower the returns sorry. <laughs> I got confused there for a second. But typically, not to be, uh, to, to the short of it, assume at least 50 to 100 basis points, which is 0.5 to 1% higher than the purchase cap for the exit cap. The other big ones there are the rent increases and the rehab budget per door. Is you want to make sure that the sponsor is not projecting a steep rent increase year to year not just in the first year, because the first year you might see a bit of an increase because let's say we bought a property and we know that the rents are way below market. Our goal is to catch up to the market, right? So you might see that first year where we lose tenants, we clean up the tenant base, we increase the rents pretty steeply sometimes in properties. But after that, I want to see a very moderate increase in rent because assume that the economy goes down and we see a recession, you're not going to see rent increases at that point, right? So I want to assume almost a flat line where the rents rents are increasing maybe 2%, but the expenses also I underwrite at 2% or 3%, whatever that is. So essentially, it's a flat line. I'm assuming that I cannot increase rents. You might even see places where you decrease rents or markets where you decrease rents. So we are not really modeling all of those. So keep in mind that the returns you're seeing that the sponsor's projecting is not exactly what you might see if the economy goes another direction. We are assuming everything will be okay. So I like to see very conservative numbers there at this point where our rent increases are about for, you know, the the pro forma rent increases, which means the first year rent increases are about 10 to 15%. And then after that, it's kind of flat line. Um, The other one uh, I'll also look at is the historical market cap. The reason I like this... um, number, and you can ask this of the sponsor, do you know what the historical market cap is that I like to stress test to deal and say, how did the property perform in 2009? You know, what is the historical market cap of this property in an upturn and a downturn? So I can look at the numbers and say, okay, if I plug this in, you can ask the sponsor. I mean, the, the, the problem here is the passive investor might not have the worksheet that the sponsor is working with unless, until, unless the sponsor is really transparent and says, hey, you go 
Most, most sponsors will not provide the entire worksheets. They might provide screenshots of their worksheets. So it's good to ask your sponsor. I think a very valid question here to ask your sponsor is to say, what is the stress test for this deal? What's the What's the break-even occupancy and what have you seen in terms of cap rates in in the markets, in the downturns that we could potentially be selling this property for? And honestly, that's not such a big concern because if you have a long-term loan, you just hold it out, right? As long as we can mm-hmm. maintain the property and pay for the property, it should be fine. So those are some of the questions that I would ask the sponsor in terms of stress testing and actually the deal assumptions. Um, do you want to talk about? I'll see. talk a little bit about the um, returns and maybe if you want to talk about the returns, some profit sharing, um, and then, you know, the some of the fees associated with the two, because that folks might not be familiar with that too, just sure. to kind of round, round that out for them. So in terms of returns, I'd say, uh, again, depends on the asset class. Since I've been doing multifamily and hotels, I'll speak a little bit to both. You, When you buy at a lower cap rate, you're basically paying more for the property, just um, how the cap rate and purchase price work. Now, what happens is the returns are also compressed right now. Uh, you will not see a huge amount of cash flow, let's say, in multifamily, whereas you might see a great cash flow in hotels still. So it just depends on what asset class you're looking at. But let's talk about multifamily. And most deals that I'm looking at right now are we do what it's called a preferred return. What a preferred return means is that we give preference to the investors and we don't split the return. So let's say I make 8% returns, all of the 8%, the 100% of the 8% goes to the investors. So we are starting to do this on a lot of deals where we do pref return. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good model because it gives 100% of whatever the sponsor makes, at least whatever the number they say. If it's an 8 pref, 100% of that 8% goes to the investors. And it's in the sponsor's best interest to actually produce or try to push the property much more to make more because otherwise they don't get paid. Right. So let's say I make 10%. What an eight pref means is that the first 8% goes to the sponsor, uh, goes to the investors, but the next 2% might be split. Now, the splits depends on the deal, how the sponsor structures it. I've seen 80 20, I've seen 70 30, I've seen 60 40, I've even seen 50 50 in mobile home parks. So it depends on the asset class and the amount of work involved that the sponsor feels like, hey, I need to get compensated for doing the work. So, and actually I'll I'll talk about that with the fees. Lower fees are not exactly, not necessarily a great thing because you should not get fixated on the fees, but I'll come to that later. I still want to talk about the splits, right? There's just so many things people do with the splits. There's like a straight split. So I've seen deals where you do an 80-20 split and it's just straight. Uh, So 80% goes to the investors, 20% to the sponsors. Uh, It sounds favorable, but remember there's no pref return. So right. everything, even if they make 3%, you're sharing it 80-20. So the numbers might not actually work out to your favor, even though the percentages look very appealing. Because let's say the property is producing 8%, you're basically splitting 80-20. But in an 8% pref return with the 70-30 split, you actually would be making 100%. The investors would be making 100%. So the splits can be favorable with the pref return. That's kind of what I prefer for my investors when I look at deals, but I'm open to both depending on how the deal is structured. Um, There's also this waterfall, which gets super complicated sometimes where you go like, okay, if I have the first 8%, it goes to the investors. Eight to 10, we do a 70-30 split. Then uh, 10 to 12, we do a 60-40 split. So that's called a waterfall method. So those are the typical splits that we see. As far as the fees, I really, um, a lot of people will say, hey, you know, we want to see as low fees as possible, no acquisition, no asset management. That should not be the criteria. You should look at the sponsor. I would rather invest with the sponsor who delivers more and puts in great amount of work and produces great results because the fees pale in significance to what they produce versus saying, I want to see no fees. They basically have a sponsor that is not compensated working for you. Not not a good situation, right? Everybody needs to get paid. So right. I, I would say don't be so hung up on the fees 
as much as looking at what the sponsors produced as far as their returns and results for investors go. That's more important. If And make sure that you know, everybody wants to be fairly compensated for what they do. So very typical, we will see acquisition fees. I've seen anywhere from one to 3%. The smaller the property, which means if I'm doing a $2 million property, I probably will have seen more like 3%. But if I'm doing a $30 million property, it's probably going to be 1%. So generally, the acquisition fee is usually there in most deals. Uh, the asset management fee, usually, again, 3% or less, depending on the size of the deal. The asset management essentially means that the uh, sponsor is taking money every month. In addition to property man paying the property management company, they are involved in weekly calls with them, making sure they direct how the property is rehabbed or what what value add that doing with the property. They direct everything with the property management work with the property management company. So those fees will definitely be there in most deals. So I would expect that there could be this disposition fee, but you know, sometimes we don't see it. Like most of my deals don't have any disposition fee. We also have like bank fee and guarantee fee. I typically see the guarantee fee for really large loans, like a sponsor's buying a $30 million, $60 million property. They're putting a lot of their own personal net worth and the sponsorship team net worth on the line to actually get the loans. And I, I you typically see these for large deals. I wouldn't expect to see the bank fee or the guarantee fee for smaller deals generally. So that I think is it there. Life settlement investments have allowed financial and banking institutions to not only buy their equity contractually, but also diversify their capital from any economic market and geopolitical risk. It's been part of the billion dollar blueprint followed by institutional investors. And if you're an accredited investor, you can also now participate in this vehicle with enormous growth potential. You can watch an informational webinar presented by one of the premier organizations providing life settlement investments for number of solutions at cashflowninja.com forward slash life settlements. Yeah. And, and, just to add to what you're saying about the fees, you want interest aligned. You want people to be working hard for you. I usually look at that too. You know, I've mentioned on the show before with other team members and advisors, I look at a return on advisor. There's a return on that. So you want interest aligned in everything what you're doing. So agree with you that that should not be a sticking point or something that you want to cut corners at all. Now, uh, one habit I've observed from wealthy and successful people is that they're always studying new things, always learning new things. What are you currently studying and learning right now? Oh, I have so many books. I'm, I'm one of those people who can't seem to stick to a book. I usually have like five going on in parallel and I keep somehow flipping and flopping between them. Um, I'm reading a book uh, about Chris Neely, this uh, football coach uh, that uh, it's just I just happened to accidentally, I forget, it's called Warrior something. I'm really bad at remembering names, but um, happy to share this with uh, you offline so you can post it. But it's mostly about how this guy went from focusing on outcomes. He was actually a head coach for Miami Dolphins at some point and then lost all his money, went into bankruptcy with um, two, with a baby on the way, almost losing his home. And um, he talks about how he, this whole approach of just focusing, not just, not on the outcome, but on the process and just doing hundred percent in everything he was doing at the moment. And that completely changed his trajectory. And I, I think it's powerful because I've been getting this message over and over again from multiple sources. Because when I started on my own business last year as an entrepreneur, I was really faced with this idea of like, oh my God, I need to make X amount of money. I need to do this. I need to do that. And I was just like caught up with that. So caught up with that, that I just forgot to enjoy the process a little bit. And it took me a few months to step back and look at the bigger picture and go, okay, I know what I'm working towards, but that shouldn't be, you know, every day is not going to be that. That's, that's the focus. Yes. But I also need to focus on building that process and focusing on the process itself and enjoying the process more importantly. And as long as I'm doing every day, I wake up, I give it my hundred percent. I enjoy what I do. I let the outcomes happen, you know, I let the outcomes be. So I, I find that a very powerful book. And also 
Alchemist is probably my most favorite book of all time. I've read that many times and I continue to read it. And I feel like every time I read it, I get something new out of it that I, I somehow didn't read into it. Because on the surface, it's like a fable. You know, it's nothing like, oh my God, nothing, nothing to, it's about the shepherd who goes in search of his destiny. And, you know, it's just very transformative in the way it's um, phrased. And when you start reading between the lines and the deeper meaning of it all, for me, it was just life-changing. So that's one. Um, Trying to think, I have uh, this book called Miracle Morning. Mm Mm-hmm has kind of changed my whole um, mindset in the last probably about, I think I'm on day 128 or 129 today, where you wake up every morning and you have a morning routine, which is like silence, affirmations, visualizations, exercise. It's called savers. So for me, that's been a huge, I mean, it's much less about the book, more more, more about the practice of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, written by Hal Elrod. A very inspiring fellow, um, just amazing. Um, for me, uh, I joined an accountability group because I'm really good about starting something, but I suck at keeping it up. So I need accountability and I need to you know, feel that, okay, I'm working on it constantly. So consistency has been a big focus for me last year when I started the business because I do start things with full gusto and I don't necessarily <laughs> keep that, keep that, you know, keep that going. So I've been focusing on being consistent and I feel like a daily practice has really helped me be more consistent in delivering an output every day and not again, worrying so much about the results because the results do come. Absolutely. Now, a core message in our show is to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations, not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations, and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? So I'd say, you know, the the mindset and attitude is very important for me, like just focusing on where you are at the moment and making the most of the moment. Because for me, wealth is important like everybody else. Money serves a purpose. It allows you to experience things. But for me, uh, where I am right now matters more. I want to enjoy the moment and stay in the moment. And I think that's very important. Like I have a daughter, she's 15. And it's very important for me to kind of give that message to her saying, Money would come and go, you know, if success is not based on money, but where you are at the moment and making, making sure that you're exploiting your full potential and doing the best you can at every moment is more important. Uh, and just having that mindset and attitude that it doesn't matter what happens, I'm doing what I can to work towards it. And the other one is experience, not things. I'm sure everybody's heard this. For me, it's more important the experiences in life. Like I'm a dancer. I love to travel. I, I focus on doing as much in life as possible, meaning in terms of experiences. I will skydive. I will try anything once. So I feel like that's, for me, I want to inculcate that in my child um, and hopefully inspire a few people along the way uh, that experiences because at the end of the day, when you wake, when you're old and you know, you can't do much anymore, what are you going to look back and say, was it a life worth well, well lived, right? And experiences, I believe, make that life well lived, you know, whether you travel to Spain or whatever you did, like those things are things you're going to remember. You're not going to remember that big screen TV you bought, you know, it's probably antiquated in like a year after you bought. So for me, experiences over things, uh, attitude and mindset, and just uh, working towards things one day at a time. And also having a goal that is bigger than yourself, right? Like we all need something to work towards. And that when you're working towards just a goal that's all about yourself, it's not fulfilling because the minute you reach that goal, you wake up and you go like, okay, that was a cool. What's the next? What's next? So I feel like having a goal outside of yourself, which involves helping someone else, whether it's an investor, whether it's it's a cause that you are, you are really passionate about or whatever, that is more important at the end of the day, because that gives you true fulfillment. I'm a big fan of Tony Robbins. And so he calls it, 
the art of fulfillment and the science of achievement. There are a lot of people who are great achievers, but who are not fulfilled, right? But fulfillment is what we're all moving towards. And what we really truly want is fulfillment. But we kind of get sidetracked on the achievement part. Like we're really good achievers, but we're not necessarily good at feeling fulfilled. So my focus is always, I think what I'd like to pass on to the viewers and, you know, I'm speaking like I would speak to my own child is that focus on the fulfillment aspect, you know, the success will come, you know, just be fulfilled where you are at the moment. Very powerful stuff. Where can listeners learn more about you? Where can they follow you and where can they stay informed of all of the projects that you're involved with? Sure. Um, Just cherrystreetinvestments.com. Um, the cherry street all spelt out fully. Um, and I also have a Facebook group that I run called purely passive investor group. My focus, like I said, has been on helping passive investors be educated. So I actually run biweekly webinars. So I have webinars that I invite guest speakers to. I speak myself. It ranges from multifamily next this week, actually tomorrow I have Frank Rolf who's one of the largest owners of mobile home parks in the country speaking on my webinar tomorrow. So I have a wide range of topics. So if you want to learn about real estate investments in general and financial advice, I am going to have a topic, which is infinite banking as well, which is very related to UMC. Um, So just like a whole bunch of topics about underwriting, about being doing passive due diligence, all of those topics. So feel free to look me up on YouTube. Again, Cherry Street Investments on YouTube. I post all my webinar recordings there. And if you also go to my website, um, there's like a webinar section and you can actually sign up for future webinars and you'll be notified of them. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge and providing so much value for my listeners. Thank you for having me, MC. It was great to talk to you. presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objectives, situation and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.